You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, welcome to Culture Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Abigail Nathanson. Uh, Abby, could you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Abby. <laughs> Um, and <laughs> what, okay, so our conversation today is going to be about, uh, two things which are related, um, and the, um, and so, and they're related, um, through, uh, momentous events that have happened to you in the past couple months. Um, so one of those events is, um, that you, uh, successfully defended, uh, your doctoral dissertation. Um, and so we're going to talk about that. and. Uh, the the general topic that you uh were working on uh is death and death anxiety um and then the other momentous event is that you um uh got sick with uh covid-19 or however people are saying it and uh you have recovered thankfully um so we're <laughs> happy about that but i thought it might be interesting to just talk about that at, on a kind of a human level but also relate it to you know what connection can we find between your research and what in this crazy event that's happening uh, yeah. all over the country and all over the world? So, um, so thank you again, Abby, for for coming on. Um, and so, why don't we start with um, why don't we start with uh, which is what is death anxiety, um, and how how would you define that term? You know, um, there's sort of death anxiety in the way that you understand it on a daily basis, which is sort of a fear. Death. It's um, a pretty well-named term. Like it's not a tricky term. Um, I think that when when I think about death anxiety, I'm thinking about not just that fear of death, but what is the evolutionary avoidance around the fear of death, right? Because most people, if you ask them directly, or hey, are you scared to die? They would say, yeah, in the general sense, I'd rather not die. But most people don't like acknowledge that they have this fear of death, um, sort of innately. And so I would say it is this experience that happens on multiple levels. It is cognitive, it is emotional, it is spiritual, it is cultural, um, it is existential. It's all in the way that we make sense of the world and our own vulnerabilities um, and the ways that we are sort of consciously or unconsciously aware of our own annihilation and the possibility of us, of our own deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, how, okay, so how did you come to, uh, come to this topic? Uh, you know, that's actually a question I get a lot because I'm not, I'm not a particularly dark person. I'm sort of a cheerful person. Um, and so when people find out that I study death anxiety and I work in end of life, it sort of seems incongruent. Um, you know, I, you know, the, the, the desire to work in end of life is sort of what sparked my interest in death anxiety. It wasn't really the other way around. Um, I'm a social worker by training and I worked in, um, hospitals and all these sort of crisis centers. And what I found is that when people became sick and when people were sort of faced with their own mortality, there was a level of vulnerability and a, like the walls come down and there's this ability to connect on this profoundly human level that you don't get to see um, sort of in a therapist's office necessarily, you know, sitting in part, let's talk about something that happened in the past 45 minutes in this prescribed time once a week. What does it mean to be at the bedside when something is happening and to be able to be present in it? For me, it just felt like a powerful experience as a social worker that I, I enjoyed that piece of it, that feeling of sort of connection. Um, but I think what I, what I found, what happened is that I was working in hospitals and nursing homes and places like this. And then I started working in inpatient hospice and I had um, a death a day for about two and a half years. And so somewhere around eight or 900 deaths um, 
uh, ironically, we were having a self-care, uh, like once a quarter for all the clinicians, they have these like self-care meetings where they read off the names of the people who have died and then they do something sort of spiritual or some opportunity to reflect and sort of acknowledge. And they read off all the names. And every time they read off a name, my mind just went blank. And I was just like, I don't remember any of these people. Like I was with all these people when they died and with their families. I made bereavement calls and I couldn't tell you if any of them were. And I realized I distanced myself so much from this experience that I missed some cue that I was overwhelmed. I missed some cue that I created so much space to cope with the work that I could no longer see the work. I could no longer see the people in it. Um, and so that was sort of when I made this switch into uh, teaching and supervision and everything else. And that's sort of my academic interest in death anxiety in terms of how do you understand what it is and how do you help people who are faced with it, you know, in hospice and hospitals and palliative care? How do you help people who are faced with it all the time? Um, and how do you help people manage that? Uh, because usually you don't have to see a lot of death. Uh, present pandemic, notwithstanding, you don't usually have to see a lot of death. And so how do you help people who see it all the time still stay connected? So it came from my own experience of being really burned out, just hitting that wall of like, wow, I cannot, my heart is not able to take this in anymore. What just happened here? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, yeah, so it's interesting that, you know, like, I guess, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, like avoidance was kind of the psychological strategy you were uh, using to uh, deal with the fact that you, you know, were working, you're having one death a day, one, one person you were working with um, dying every day. Yeah. And so what, so the, did you, and uh, you sent me uh, the, your, the slides for your um, dissertation presentation, which you had to do over Zoom because of the current um, uh, circumstances. And, you know, you got to break it down into, you know, the, the different groups of people who are, um, who are dealing with this and uh, there were four groups and you can tell me what they are, but, um, and how, how this uh, death anxiety, you know, affected uh, or played out in, in, in different ways. Um, you know, I think the sort of, you asked two really good questions. The so one is that how avoidance is really underrated. I would say that people who cope really well with death are generally really good at avoiding. And I think the trick with avoidance is having some control over it, making it a conscious process. Um, because if you, I mean, sort of the main tenets of death anxiety is if you were like right now in this moment, right, you and I, there's like a thousand different ways we could die in this very moment, right? This exactly. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and like intellectually, we're aware of this. Like if somebody had to make a list of like a thousand different ways somebody could die in this moment, like you could, you could come up with a thousand. Um, but we don't think about it all the time, right? If we thought about it all the time, we would get nothing done. <laughs> we would not get out, leave our beds. We would not do all these different things. And so in some ways it's, it's really helpful and necessary to avoid, to not make conscious this fear that we have of um, how fragile uh, our existence is and how fragile we are. And so avoidance is sort of this big bucket term. And I think what we, what we look for is how do you avoid? How do you create that space? How do you go towards? And is it malleable? Like, can I at five o'clock at the end of the day, turn it off and say, okay, there's all this pain and suffering I saw all day long and that was painful. And now it's five o'clock and now I have to go out and be emotionally open to my friends and family and loved ones and do the things I care about and feel alive. Um, Do I have the ability to control that, to manipulate that, to ask for help, to recognize when it's coming, or is it so subconscious that I'm not even aware? Like it was, you know, that day that I realized all these people had died, I didn't know who they were, or is that avoidance like so buried deep underneath that I don't even know that I'm avoiding it. Um, and so the whole idea of avoidance is part of what makes it so interesting. Um, cause there's, there's things that sort of mitigate your experience of death anxiety. The sort of terror management theory talks about those things, but avoidance is incredibly necessary. 
um, very few people could cope with life without avoiding most of it. Um, so I think, yeah, to, to your point about avoidance, that's, it's, it's sort of a tricky, it's a sort of a tricky nuanced situation. Okay. Um, so, so there's, okay. So there's an upside to avoidance because uh, you, you could be, um, you know, you would, uh, I can imagine a person who's psychologically focused on death so much that they are scared of getting out of bed. Um, but then total avoidance is maybe, uh, is, uh, bad, bad as well because you're just putting emotions aside or, or something like that. Or yeah. are you bearing them down? Or what, how, do, how is that understood? I think that's a good point. I think it's this idea of what they call psychic numbing. Um, we don't have the ability to just numb parts of ourselves. Like I can't just be numb to the fear of work and then still be open at the end of the day to the people I love and care about and to my own ability to feel awake and alive and everything else. And if I numb myself to that fear, all of my energy goes towards not feeling this. So this is the thing I don't want to feel that's so threatening, death and destruction and vulnerability, whatever that is. And I spend all my energy looking for it, look, scanning the environment. Is it coming? Is it coming? Is it coming? And spending all my energy doing this, that there's not the energy to actually engage, mm-hmm. right? That all my energy is going to balancing this. And so the idea is that if you can acknowledge this and let it come and not have it be a threat, have it be this thing that comes and then it goes and comes and goes. And sometimes it's salient and sometimes it's not, then you're not spending all of your energy sort of turned away from, and you can be present. It's very hard because I talk with my hands and now with Zoom, I have to figure out how to talk with my hands in a much smaller way. So <laughs> I'm, I'm adjusting because usually I would be doing this, but then you can't see it. So yeah, uh, yeah, this is one of many modern um, communication <laughs> problems we've, we've discovered uh, in, in the new normal. Um, okay, so you know, I guess there's so okay, so what so you know, I, and this gets maybe towards some of the self care stuff. Like what like what are the coping me- mechanisms to give you like a healthy a healthy medium? Um, of some avoidance, but not total avoidance. I mean, you can think of the unhealthy things would be like drugs or alcohol or. I don't know, actually, you know, um, you know, I, I, I'm on faculty at NYU. And one of the things I tell my students is there are no wrong answers except for math. Like math is always the wrong answer. Um, <laughs> but in terms of self-care, I think this is sort of a bigger topic within social work, within helpers, within healthcare and other places is that, you know, there's the difference between being kind to yourself, like giving yourself a mani-pedi or a massage or cookie or whatever you want. Uh And those things are not usually self-care. I mean, those things are lovely. And certainly if people want to give me massages, I'm going to, I mean, that sounds great. Um, But it's more about how do you keep yourself open to giving and receiving love, right? Like if you do something nice for me, then I'm going to feel good for a few minutes, but it's not necessarily going to make my soul more able to take in vulnerability and suffering and all these different things. And so I think that the actual practice of self-care I think one, it starts with validating your own experiences. And that starts with sort of unpacking some of the judgments we have about this idea of like stoic emotions, this masculine, this toxic masculine idea that like emotions have to be stoic. And if you have a lot of feelings, if you're feeling sensitive, then that's somehow wrong or less than or something to fix or something to come out of. And sort of welcoming this experience that we are highly emotional creatures. We are for a reason. It's what makes life wonderful and rich and nuanced. And um, I think starting to sort of unpack uh some of that and acknowledging that sometimes things suck and sometimes things are painful. And in many ways, allowing space for that is a really great form of self-care because it leaves you open to taking in, taking in the things that are good, the things that make you feel alive um, and the things that make you feel connected. And beyond that, I think it's so different for every person. I mean, for me, sometimes my self-care is saying no to people is saying, I don't want to go out for drinks. I mean, it's moot now, but <laughs> it's, uh, you know, what I want to do tonight is sit alone on my couch and stare out the window. That's my self-care tonight. And being able to set that limit sometimes is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. I don't know. I think self-care is tricky. I think, you know, there's all this talk about self-care, but at the end of the day, self-care is really giving yourself permission to fall apart and letting that be okay. And letting that not be a sign that something's wrong, but just a sign that you're human. And, you know, we collapse and we cope and we collapse and we cope and we go back and forth and it's what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about the, the current um, situation of the pandemic and how it's yeah. affecting caregivers and affected uh, you personally. So, um, so I mean, I, I was just thinking like, you know, there was, there was this uh, tragic case that got a lot of publicity of a woman uh, who was a, a doctor in New York city who killed herself um, a couple, you know, like a, a month into the pandemic as, and that was, I guess, t- seen as, you know, you, you never really know exactly why someone kills himself, but um, you know, it, it seemed like someone who the, the tragedy and the pain and suffering of, of all, all these deaths, uh, like overwhelmed them. Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, but it, at the same time it is, well, okay. When this, when this kind of started, I, I remembered something I had read somewhere that like, um, during a time of crisis, uh, like great, great national global, global crisis, uh, so like suicides go down, mm-hmm. uh, because, uh, speculated that there's some sort of sense of purpose, um, mm-hmm. happening th- where people feel like, uh, they have, they have something to live for in order to like contribute to something and, and, and then I, but then I, I was looking, just looking into this online. It seems like there's contrasting. Maybe this isn't true at all, but this is just like an old understanding of, of sure. what was happening. But so there was this. So okay, so there's the people who, um, the, the doctors who are directly dealing with uh, the pain, suffering, and death, and then there's the rest of us who are in this strange situation where like life is on pause in some ways, and, and um, I, I don't even know where I'm going with all this. But the, um, I, but I wonder how now that you know we're all thinking about death a lot more <laughs> than we were three months ago. Um, like how that is affecting every, like everyone's mental health or yeah. if there's, you know, in some ways, you know, like Trump talks about like, Oh, this is a war. He's a war president. But you know, this is, there hasn't been like a, a national mobilization the way there was during world war two. We're all just kind of like most of us at least are stuck inside and yeah. uh, twirling our thumbs and like waiting for things to improve. Um, so you can some way uh, you can tell the average person, like you're, you're doing your part by, by staying inside and practicing, you know, social distancing and stuff like that. Um, but that doesn't, it doesn't feel like, you know, the kind of purpose from, you know, working in a munitions factory during world war two or, or something or something along those lines. Do you have any thoughts on any of that? Yeah, That's really, you know, that's so interesting. And I think, you know, the, the hard part is when, when people die by suicide, it's always complex. Um, I think you can, almost never. And I don't know this, this uh, doctor's situation, but when, when people die by suicide, I don't know that you can always sit there and say this thing happened. And that's why this happened. Um, Most people have who die by suicide have an underlying vulnerability and they have some confluence of feeling overwhelmed in a moment and all these sort of underlying stressors and things that happen. And then in a moment, the pain and suffering feels so unbearable um, that it seems like the only way out and the only way to get some relief or the only way to sort of, you know, relieve other people. Um, I think the the scary part when the when it was posted about the woman is that a lot of us who work in healthcare, and especially my colleagues who are on the front lines, and I'm not on the front lines right now, but a lot of my colleagues who are on the front lines, is how close to home that hit. Because um, I think we've all had moments of, holy shit, I can't do this. This is so much suffering. Like whose brain, whose soul can handle seeing this much death and destruction all the time? Um, I talked to my friends who work at hospice and there's, you know, the 20 foot refrigerated trucks outside the hospitals for the morgues and stuff like that. Um, you know, people who are dying alone because they can't have visitors and it's, it's so hard to, to, um, 
wrap your head around it. But what's, I guess, part of, part of what I think is interesting about this for me is this is not more thinking about death than I usually have. Um, for me, there's suddenly um, congruence. Like the amount of death that was already in my head is now matching in the outside world. And now it's like, oh, yes. Um, but um, I forgot the other part of your question. Well, I was thinking about, you know, like, how the, the like, vulnerability and how people are coping and meaning. Yeah, and just, you know, there's the, the average person who is not confronted with death constantly, but there's this, uh, there's this threat of death outside. And then also like, um, you know, the, the sense of that, that there's like a great, um, you know, like existential event happening and we're like, are, are we drawn together during this for a sense yeah. of like solidarity, but we're obviously all separated. So it's, it's a weird paradox of like, mm-hmm. you know, st- stay apart together. That guy, or there's some slogan that was along those lines. So yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, it's all very strange. <laughs> what do you think yeah. of it? Um, well, I think it's a grammatically poor saying, but that's okay. Um, you know, I think the part you bring up about meaning and purpose is really crucial. Um, a lot of the work that I've done is on this idea of demoralization. And demoralization is the loss of meaning and purpose. It's the loss of a sense that there is um, a reason for all the suffering. And it's, some people have this belief that, like, the worst existential pain you can have is despair. And demoralization sort of, you know, where the loss of hope. And um, demoralization sort of takes that one step farther and says, no, you can lose hope, but still have a sense of meaning and purpose and be able to cope. And it's all based on uh, Victor Frankl, who's had this idea of logotherapy that he who has a why, Nietzsche, who said he, Frankl's work was he who has a why to live can bear with almost any hell. And it's really based and on- Frankl was a Holocaust survivor? Yes, no, that's a good point. Victor Frankl, he was a psychiatrist in the concentration camps in the Holocaust. He wrote Man's Search for Meaning, which I make all of my students and supervisees read at all times. And you should too. It's only like <laughs> It's only like 100 pages. Um, But it talks about this idea that if we have a sense of purpose, we can handle the suffering. There needs to be a reason for the suffering. And that the worst pain is having suffering for no reason Mm -hmm. um, is almost worse than suffering at all. Um, He was describing uh, people in the concentration camps that, you know, were dying. They were emaciated. They were, uh, you know, the, the, the prisoners and the whatever. And they had like a couple handfuls of bread, breadcrumbs, and they would hand it out to other people. And on their like days before their own deaths, they would be comforting other people and recognizing this was not going to save them, but it gave them a sense of meaning and purpose that they are there and they're um, had some ability to have control over how they think about things and how they do things. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the interventions for clinicians, and this might be sort of interesting, you know, when we think about now everybody's exposed to death all the time. um, A lot of the interventions for clinicians are about getting in touch with that sense of meaning and purpose. Um, The people on the front lines, you know, have the feeling of I'm on the front lines, you know, I'm doing something, I'm contributing something. Um, and when people are home, it's hard to have that same feeling. It's like, I'm suffering and for what? I'm suffering. And if you don't agree with the, some of the politics or some of the international forces that sort of people sort of attribute to what led it there, then it seems like this needless suffering. Um, but yeah, that's basically what they're trying to have people buy into. I think all the um, public health and all the governor and everybody else, the, um, you know, New York City, if you watch television all day, as some of us do now, um, the health commissioner always talks about save, lo- save save other people's lives and stay home. And I think it's, as you said, it's a sense of if I have a meaning, then I am part of something bigger than myself. Then my own vulnerability as this individual is less important. And I think it all sort of comes down to this idea of we're social creatures. We're meant to be part of a group. We're meant to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Like if you think about a baby, uh, you know, out in a field by itself, uh, it can go without food longer than it can go without protection, right? A baby can go without food for hours and hours and hours, but if you leave a baby out in the field, this is gruesome, this is what I talk about, you know, a bear comes by, a predator comes by, whatever else happens. And so we are taught to have 
distress at separation. If we don't have distress at separation, then we don't have social groups. If we don't have social groups, we don't stay alive. And so a lot of times that sense of meaning and purpose sort of mimics that idea of I need to be part of something bigger than myself. By myself, I'm this baby in a field and a predator could get me. If I'm part of a group, then I'm safe. If I'm part of something bigger than myself, then I'm safe. And the sense of meaning and purpose, I think, comes out of that idea that if you can identify that what you're doing is part of a bigger plan, part of a bigger purpose, then it's not just me feeling powerless sitting at home watching TV all day long or whatever I'm doing, but I'm part of this big, big effort that is something bigger than just me. And we think it helps people cope with all the ways in which they feel powerless right yeah and i mean one of the um uh i mean one of the like like strange paradoxes about this all is like you know uh like join the massive national effort by like doing nothing um you know like i said earlier going to the munitions factory or giving blood or or, like some other active active thing so it it just i don't know it's it goes against uh common sense thinking like if i'm if i'm doing nothing then somehow uh, I'm contributing and maybe it's at a level of abstraction that's kind of too far for like the average person. I don't know. I mean, I think like, you know, if Trump were a president and this were still rolling out, you can imagine like, um, you know, someone, uh, a better leader giving, you know, fireside addresses and, and bucking up the country and trying to keep morale high. And like, you know, uh, they, they like six weeks ago, they could have said like everyone who, owns a sewing machine or even like a needle and thread like start making masks and you know we'll like pay you like ten dollars a mask and distribute them to people who don't have sewing machines or something so then like that that's one way that you know it could have seemed like you know the the nation's uh resources were being called upon for some sort of national effort and that actually seems like a productive one not just like a symbolic one like the um you know the clapping at 7 p.m that that people in the new york area are doing for um uh, for, for first responders and, and people in the front lines. So, but yeah, but that hasn't happened. And, and so I think we, you know, we are still adrift and a lot of, I don't know, it, you know, it, it's hard to tell exactly how, how, how many people feel this way, but you have all the, the, the you know, people protesting at um, state capitals and, and, you know, wanting to go get their hair cut and <laughs> go to uh, TJ Fridays or whatever. And yeah. so, yeah, so I, I feel like, you know, the, there's, there's an alternate reality where, uh, the better angels of our nature have been appealed to and like national solidarity could have been called upon. And instead we have this, you know, guy who loves um, apart and, uh, and tearing people down and, and so forth. Um, not to get too political. Well, I, I was going to say, you know, the political stuff is not my area of expertise, but I think what you're describing is still a desire of an individual to feel powerful, to feel like I'm part of a group and I'm part of a movement and I can accomplish things and I can do things. And I think it's really just another way, however ineffective in the long term. Um, in the short term to sit there and say, if I protest, then I'm making change. If I can go out and live my life and be part of the community, then I'm part of something again. And so in many ways, this is a way that people sort of fight that sense of death anxiety. I mean, the terror management research sort of supports this idea that cultural self-esteem, a cultural worldview, a, a belief that I am part of something bigger and that I am living up to my society's expectations of who I should be is the best protector protectant against death anxiety that if I feel like I'm doing what my society says a good person does, then I don't have to feel so vulnerable. And so in many ways, being part of a community that is fighting the powers that be, however misaligned their values might be, that process is very much aligned with this idea of if you can find a way for people to feel powerful, they will be less anxious. Yeah, that makes sense. And and if you look at how some people in these protests um, kind of behave and clothe themselves and so forth, you know, dressing in like body armor and having guns, then that 
I assume makes them feel like they're soldiers of the front lines of some sort of, you know, important effort. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, if there was ever a metaphor for not wanting to feel vulnerable, it's going outside with body armor and a gun. Right. You know? Especially if you're like, uh, you know, a middle-aged white guy <laughs> in Michigan or something who is, is you know, not going to be threatened in any way. Um, can you just define uh, terror management um, theory? Terror management theory, yes. Um, it sort of, it goes back to that idea that I was talking about at the beginning that if we were, it's the, it's, it's, part of the existential therapy sort of realm of things. And there's actually a lot of really interesting sort of empirical research on it, um, which you don't usually have for existential things. Existential things are notoriously difficult to manage, to, to, to measure, to make concrete. Um, but it's this idea that uh, it's sort of an answer to death anxiety. It's how do you explain the fact that for some people, the experience of death anxiety is so intense and for some people it's not. And um, it was sort of the basis of the research that I had done in my doctoral program. Um, and so terror management theory has this idea that a good sense of self-esteem, a good sense of a cultural worldview um, and connections are the things that mitigate and moderate your experience of death anxiety. So the idea is that death anxiety, everybody has it baseline, right? If you weren't scared to die, then you're not going to be anxious about the rustling in the, in the woods and being worried that it's a bear or something, right? You're like, oh, there's a rustling in the woods. That's cool. You know, no, you want the people who are anxious about that rustling in the woods because mm-hmm. that's that's the people who are going to be like, because oh, like, you know, if, <laughs> if, if, there, if there's rustling a thousand times, and 999 times it's nothing. And one times, one time it's a bear, like you're still better off getting scared all yes. 1,000 times. Exactly. And so we are as humans, exactly predis- well predisposed. And I will say in this moment, I'm so excited to be doing this podcast in New York because I'm from the South and you can't just assume that everybody believes in evolution. Uh, <laughs> where I'm from, but it's delightful right now. I could talk about evolution like it's a given. Um, you know, we are, we are, we are, we have evolved to be anxious about death because it keeps us alive. Um, you know, and so there's, there's sort of that piece of it. And so terror management theory basically says we have this inherent anxiety about death. At the same time, we have a need to not think about it all the time or else we wouldn't survive and get things done and really thrive. And so the question is, what do we do to create this space where we are functional enough to still be part of a society, to still be connected, but we are not so caught up in preoccupied about bear, 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 that we can't be part of a society and whatever as well. And so terror management theory is this idea of this cultural worldview and a sense of belief about the world and a sense of your place in the world, your sense of self-esteem. Am I meeting the expectations of the people in my world um, and this ability to form connections? And this goes back to this idea of avoidance and psychic numbing where if I'm numb, then I can't have self-esteem. I can't engage in this cultural uh, relationship. I can't have these connections and feel more powerful and alive. Um, and so the idea is sort of, as you said, sort of finding that balance. And so the, the research I did was based on this idea of terror management theory. And so we looked at um, hospice and palliative care clinicians in uh, like 19 states um, all across the country and said, you know, what's your professional quality of life? How satisfied do you feel in your work as sort of a measurement of psychic numbing? Can you still take in that you are powerful and you make a difference at work and it matters and you have a sense of identity about it? And what is your level of death anxiety? And these are sort of two separate validated scales. And we added in, um, the research team added in some other pieces as well, but we were basically looking at like, what is the relationship between a professional quality of life and death anxiety? If you have a high death anxiety, does that mean you have a lower professional quality of life because you're so anxious you can't take in the good stuff um, or vice versa. If you have a very high professional quality of life, my work is meaningful and it's powerful and I do good things and I'm not burnt out and I don't have compassion, fatigue and whatever. Do I have less death anxiety? Um, and, and by and large, yes, that is sort of the relationship that, that the numbers are showing, but now oh, it's, it's like an, it's like an inverse relationship. Yes, there are some out there. There are some outliers, but basically, the higher the professional quality of life, the lower the death anxiety, and it's pretty. It's a pretty strong relationship. 
Okay. Um, and how, so uh, I assume you don't ask people how high is your death anxiety in a scale of one to 10. Uh, there must be like, a, what are the kinds of questions that you ask someone to find out their death anxiety? <laughs> there are many different validated scales for this actually. And the cool thing with these and existing validated scales is that somebody else did all the work already to make sure that this measures what it is you think it should measure. And so mm-hmm. when they're developing the death anxiety tools, they usually do some sort of factor analysis where they start with a hundred different measures. So you get a bunch of experts in the field, put their heads together and here's a hundred different things that we think death anxiety is. And then we'll ask a thousand people. And then, okay, of a thousand people, it looks like only these 50 are salient. Okay, let's look at these 50. If we look at these 50, ask the next thousand people. Okay, these 10 are really most productive. So if you look at these 10 questions, they are most likely to predict this phenomenon sort of phenomenologically um, elsewhere. And so there are existing death anxiety scales. Um, the ones that, uh, that we, the one that we ended up choosing, I'm drawing a blank now, this was last summer. Um, it doesn't, the, the thing is, is it sort of has to acknowledge that death anxiety is not explicit. It's a lot of times it's avoidant. It's under your skin. And so they ask questions like, um, I'm worried about, because death anxiety can mean so many different things. I'm worried about suffering. I'm worried that my family is going to see me suffering. I'm worried that my death will be a burden to people. Um, different parts like that. Not just, are you scared to die? Yes or no. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how, <laughs> how much that would sort of get at the different levels of avoidance that people have. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so the next phase of the research is to look at what are the factors that impact who has the high professional quality of life and the low death anxiety. Does it have to do with how long you've been in the field? Does it have to do with your role? Does it have to do with religious beliefs? Does it have to do with whether or not you have small children? What are all the different things that are impacting, moderating the relationship between um, professional quality of life and death anxiety? So, but I think this is true for all of us. I think to your point now is that what happens is like if you right? So like, like right now, you and I are not actively thinking about all the ways we could die, even though I brought it up before, maybe <laughs> think about it a little bit more. Um, and so we get to have this space, we get to have this barrier. And I think this is sort of what's interesting for other people. And so right now, intellectually, I'm completely aware that I could die. And emotionally, I'm not, it's not on the forefront of my mind, right? I'm thinking about being here and talking to you and, and whatever. And, but let's say I'm talking to you. And let's say you're very sick. Let's say you have cancer. And all of a sudden, you no longer have the ability to pretend that death is not near. You no longer have the ability to pretend like death is not something that can happen to you right away. And so when that barrier is down, then you are acutely more aware of your own death anxiety. And so for me, in talking to you and emotionally connecting to you and being empathically attuned and looking for your emotional experiences, you are going to bring that up in me because I'm going to see myself in you. And if death is near for you, then death is near for me. Mm-hmm. Right? And so it's this thing of, do I create more distance? Do I I'm say, oh, I can't get so close to you because you're going to remind me of my own unbearable death anxiety? Or am I going to throw myself into it and think, oh, I can fix you and then I don't have to fix the feelings? There's all these different things that um, clinicians do to manage their death anxiety. And so the, the research sort of has to get around those experiences, but a lot of the interventions for how do you support people with death anxiety sort of take that piece of it, you know, into account that to be empathically attuned is to feel somebody else's experiences. And so if I'm talking to somebody who has a reasonable fear of death, it's going to change things. And I think to your, to your point, it was really weird for me to be defending my dissertation about a month after I had coronavirus myself. And I was like, man, I was really not expecting my uh, dissertation to be quite so salient, you know? Um, and I was recognizing that even the people in the room, the people on my committee have their own death anxiety. And I'm sitting here talking about being anxious about death and being aware that me talking about it means that your walls are coming down. You're thinking about it more saliently. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a couple more things I did want to ask, but let's, let's, let's tra- uh, segue into the personal uh, coronavirus section of the conversation. Yeah. So, um, the best part of any conversation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, so how, okay. Just tell us what it was like. Do you know how you contracted it? Do you know? And then what, what, and then once you, how did you realize you did have it? And then what happened after that? 
Um, so I work in a hospital, um, and I'm not in the hospital full time, but I'm in the hospital sometimes. And I and I ride the subway, and I go outside and I talk to people. And so, God only knows. Um, a couple of people in my office we suspect had it as well. So I assume I got it. Um, I was at the hospital a couple of days before the lockdown. Um, and so I assume I got it there. I don't really know. Could have been the subway. Could have been anything. I live in Manhattan. Um, how did I know I had it? The first couple of days I didn't. I had a sore throat and a sore neck, and I thought it was something else. Um, and then when the fever hit and I lost my sense of smell, I was like, I think this is it. And then right. a couple of days later, I started having trouble breathing. And, um, you know, it's terrifying. I live alone. Um, and so it was really scary. And on the one hand, and I was asking myself for the question of meaning and purpose, if I just had like the flu or a cold and I was this level of miserable, I don't know if I would have been so pained about it. I wouldn't have been suffering so much. So I said, oh, it's a flu. People get the flu. I'm not a high risk category. I'll be fine. This is going to be annoying. But it's like, I have the pandemic and I have this thing that's killing people that's making the world shut down. And all of a sudden the thing that I have, I'm part of something bigger than myself and I don't want to be. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so it was, you know, it was a scary experience. And then, so in doing all this, I'm also preparing for my dissertation defense, which is, you know, death anxiety. And it was just, um, it was coming from all angles. There was no, uh, not a lot of avoidance available to me during that time. No, no escape from death, I guess. Um, over the long term release. Escape death because I'm still alive. (laughs) Right. Okay. So you, so very happy that you are still with us. Um, but okay. So once you, once you started having trouble breathing, did you think I should go to the hospital now or? Or what? Um, you know, uh, because I work in healthcare, a lot of my friends are doctors. And so my best friend is actually an ICU doctor and she's an anesthesiologist. So she like majored in airways. Um, and so she was calling me like four times a day from Tennessee and checking in. And um, yeah, I didn't have to go in. Thankfully, my, to, to the point with all this, um, I was worried that I would have to. And they, you know, they were telling everybody, if you don't have to, if you don't need to go in, don't go in. I, you know, I was still able to, um, breathe at rest without being shortness of breath. I was only getting shortness of breath with exertion. And so if you can stay at rest with no shortness of breath, it's not, you know, particularly dangerous, but it it was terrifying. It was terrifying for my friends and family. You know, like if I don't text somebody back for a couple of hours, it's like, Oh my God, Abby died, you know, alone in her apartment and her cats are going to eat her face or God knows whatever people's anxieties were. But I don't know where that's where people's face. I would say I had a lot of people wonder that if I died in my apartment, one of the next questions was, do you think your cats would eat you? And where did you what come you, down on that? Um, I, I, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> okay, we can, we can leave that. Like, the, I it's like, not, not going to happen anytime soon. Like take a nap, so. put some tuna fish on my face and see what happens. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, okay, so you, you, did, you did not ever go, go to the hospital, but are you counted somehow as someone, as like a positive case of, COVID? Like in, yeah. In- so um, I did all the telehealth visits and because I lost my sense of smell for three weeks, which is surprisingly really unnerving. Um, they were like, yep, you definitely have it, but don't, right. please don't get tested. But because I work for hospital, I actually got the antibody test a couple weeks ago. And they were like, yes, you're antibody positive. Um, we don't know what it means. We don't know if it helps you with anything, but here's a test result. You can have it, you know, whatever. Um, so I don't know if I'm, ca- I guess I'm counted because I'm antibody positive, but I was not tested for it. So I see. Okay. Um, and how did you, um, you know, how did you manage life during this period where you were extremely sick and living by yourself? How did you get, did you feed yourself? Well, you know, if you want to discuss this, we we can skip it if you don't want to. Um, You know, what's interesting is because I think this is, this is, you know, when you talk about the idea that people need a sense of meaning and purpose and people need to mobilize, there's something about being alone in your apartment that leaves you vulnerable to all your old defense, your own, I'm defenseless, right? All the ways in which I would usually distract myself from however I feel about things I couldn't do. I couldn't 
comfort eat because I couldn't smell or taste anything. I couldn't see anybody and get a hug. Um, I couldn't drink. I couldn't have sex. I couldn't do anything that I would normally do to like feel better or feel alive or feel connected. I couldn't do work. And so in many ways, you know, my poor therapist got an earful during this time of like, what do you do when you're alone with yourself and there's no escape from yourself? What do you do with that? Um, and so I guess in some ways I tried to turn it into an opportunity to sit there and say, if I wasn't so distracted by my own shit all the time, like what would I really think and feel? And that was sort of what happened. Uh Um, and a lot of it was just acknowledging that sometimes I was going to have to sleep for 15 hours a day. And sometimes I was just going to have to sit on the couch. And even if I was awake, I was not going to be able to work on things. And I had to ask for extensions on book chapters and things that were due and just give myself that acknowledgement that I was going to be really tired for a couple of weeks and really exhausted. And yeah, so I don't know. I cook poorly. There's a lot of tears. There's a lot of whining. I mean, yeah, I don't know what I did. <laughs> well, I mean, um, you know, <laughs> you're, you're still here and, um, and the cats are too, I assume. So, you know, the, uh, it, it, it could have been, it could have been a lot worse, obviously. Um, so, okay. So did this, so the strange, you know, if you were writing this in a screenplay or something, they would say, this is unrealistic. If the, the woman gets coronavirus and her, you know, she's doing her final, uh, preparations for her dissertation on death anxiety. Did it like, did any, did it change your thoughts at all to, to, to be in this state? <laughs> I was nervous that like maybe I had been too cavalier and talking about death anxiety, like, Oh, it's just death anxiety and I can talk about it and whatever. And I'm just like, Oh, this is a thing. I think I was more worried about, so the, the downside of doing your defensive resume is that like nobody's there. And so like I did my defensive resume, the committee voted and like, Hey, Abby, you're a doctor. I'm like, yay. And then like, I turned off my computer and I'm still sitting alone in my apartment. And right. so it's always anticlimactic, but in other ways it was really exciting because a lot of my friends got to participate. And so they got to participate in resume. So I actually had like 50 people there to watch. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to terrify all of them. <laughs> like, usually I feel like people are like, okay, Abby, you're a little creepy with this death stuff. But I feel like <laughs> especially now that everybody's so vulnerable and everybody's actually worried about death all the time, I was feeling guilty. And there was this part of my head of like, should I tone this down? Should I change the way I talk about it? Should I protect people and be like, Oh, but there's hope and look at all the good stuff. And like, should I like sort of manage this emotional experience for people? But I think I was just so excited at that point to a smell things and B, to be almost done, um, not have it hanging over my head anymore. That mm-hmm. that was that piece. But definitely at the beginning of it, I just said, I want to acknowledge that what's happening in the room right now is I'm talking about death anxiety like it is an abstraction. And it's not. It's not an abstraction right now. Um, there's this idea that death is near and death is not near. And sometimes death is near and sometimes death is not near. And in this moment, death is very near and we can't pretend like it's not. And so me talking about it is certainly going to land. I don't know. I was worried about bumming people the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, come and support your friend, Abby. And then let me like leave, leave you in this crying, bitter mass of like existential angst and destruction. Sorry about that. I don't know. Um, well, again, very happy that you, um, you, you answered to the other side, uh, in both, you know, your, your PhD, you. or I guess it's not a PhD. It is a, it's a DSW. It's a doctor. It's a doctoral in social welfare. And also in this, uh, harmful virus that is killing uh, thousands of people every day. So, uh, so just a couple more questions on, on the death anxiety. So is um, the way you're describing it, it sounds like this is maybe descended from Freudian theory. Is that so? Or where does, where, like, what's the origin of this kind of thinking? Because I mean, just the popular understanding of Freud is like, you know, there's the uh, sex and death of the big things. And um, it, it, a lot of it relates to that or like to the you know, childhood, uh, uh, how you were raised as a child, that kind of stuff. Um <laughs> Uh, or, or but, but where does yeah where does where, where are the like origins of this way of this like line of of um, 
I think Freud is probably touching on the same things, but it probably, I would assume it very much predates Freud, this idea of, um, of, of death anxiety. And this is the part that I'm, it's, it's less uh, on the forefront of my mind at the moment. Um, I think all of the psychological theories are talking about what drives human behavior, right? And Freud said this idea of drives that you are driven by um, this uh, love or destruction, which is sort of simplistic, or this idea of this sort of structural theory of the ego, the id, the ego, the superego, and all these different things. Um, but in many ways, these are sort of touching on the same process of this sort of existential angst of death anxiety of how do you make sense of the world? How do you move through the world? How do you make decisions for who you go towards and who you go away from? How do you make decisions about who you're going to be and where you're going to get gratification and where you're not going to get gratification? Um, and so I would say it probably predates Freud, but he's probably touching on the same the same themes. But no, I, I mean, I think the Greek philosophers all the way back, religion is in many ways an answer to death anxiety, an answer to being some part of something bigger than yourself. Um, I think it's such a part of the human experience that, you know, it's probably going to be present with a lot of different theorists. Okay. And so that's actually was the other thing I wanted to ask about religion yeah. and how um, does, how does a religious belief affect this? The, 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 you know, the obvious seeming answer was that if you think you're going up to heaven after you die, then you'll maybe be a little less anxious about it. Whereas you think you're going to hell or if you think nothing happens after death, then maybe you would be more anxious. Uh, does that, it's so interesting because I feel like, like if there's an afterlife, I don't, I don't think I'm going to do well in just in afterlife. So I have decided not to believe in an afterlife just because I don't like my chances. Um, you know, uh, like there's like a rapture. I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm going to be here. It's, mm. it's going to happen. So um, I've stopped up. Um, no, I mean, I think if you're sort of looking at it from the terror management lens, it's this idea that if you believe that you're part of something bigger than yourself, if you believe there's a meaning and purpose to things, you will feel less death anxiety. And so generally speaking, and this is sort of the difference between religiosity and spirituality, but if you're very religious and you have a prescribed set of beliefs, or even if you're deeply spiritual and you believe that there's something bigger than your own day-to-day experience in the world, that is going to make you feel less vulnerable because you will feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. You will be that baby not alone in the woods, but part of the society that's going to protect you and keep you safe. Um, and so it becomes sort of, sort of metaphorical. And so generally, yes, if you find God, you will be somewhat less anxious um, but if you have a sense of meaning and purpose, you can probably achieve and accomplish the same thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it really comes down to the sense of there's a reason for me to be here. I belong. There's a reason I'm supposed to be connected. I'm connected to people. People care about me. Like those are sort of the things I am, you know, even this basic idea of I'm lovable. I am powerful. I can make good things happen really comes to this idea of, can I be part of a society? Can I be part of a group? Can I be part of whatever it is that I need? And so, Yeah. I think, I think religiosity can help, but it can also make you really anxious. You know, in my sense, if I became very religious, I think it would make me more anxious because I don't think I do well. So, you know, (laughs) well, you know, and I, I, you know, there's different um, religious understandings of what the afterlife could be. And, um, you know, in the, uh, I don't know, mainstream American Jewish understanding uh, of it, it's kind of hazy, undefined, you know, in, in Hebrew school, they don't, they don't, tell you stories about what happens in heaven or anything. Whereas it's it, more in maybe like a evangelical Christian understanding, like, you know, there's a map. There's, this is where you go and this is what's Yeah. Happening. And then all, you know, you see all the relatives and, you know, hang out with God and Jesus or whatever. And so, <laughs> yeah, so I, I, that probably has some, some effect also. Um, okay. I think those are, I think those are all the questions I have. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we, uh, before we wrap up? Um, I think, don't be afraid of your own anxiety about death. That's, those are my parting words of wisdom. Um, you're going to be anxious about death. 
that is okay. It can be the thing that inspires you to connect, to grow, to feel powerful, to accomplish things. Um, without it, you know, there's some theory that without death anxiety, we wouldn't do those things and have those connections. Um, so I would say don't fight it. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, I, I, okay. Well, I, I want to bring up one, one final thing, <laughs> um, which you just made, made me think of. Okay. So there's a, um, uh, the, the novel, um, a history of the world in 10 and a half chapters by Julian Barnes. There's okay. a, one of the chapters is called the new heaven. I think I may have, I may have some of the exact names wrong and it's about how, um, it's, it's narrated by this guy who dies and then he goes to heaven and like heaven is, you know, it like, it's like the greatest place ever. And he gets to, um, you know, like meet, uh, like every famous person in history and he gets to like go on a date with, uh, Marilyn Monroe and like have sex with her and he gets any, he, any he, like masters every, his infinite time. So he masters every single sport. Um, mm-hmm. and he can, you know, he'll play golf and he gets 18, uh, a score of 18 every single time because he gets a hole in one <laughs> every single thing. And so he, and so he does this for, and it's so like, he's just describing all the great stuff that happens to him. And then it's kind of like, well, you know, like I, I kind of did it all. Like, well, you know, I, I could play golf again and I would get a hole in one every single time again or like have sex with Marilyn Monroe again. Um, and like, then what? And then there's, and then like, you know, God or some, um, uh, voice, uh, you know, someone who's just talking for God, like says like, oh, well, there's actually this other heaven, this new heaven. And it's a little different. And, you know, it's not like this, but we're experimenting with it. And we want to see what you think. And then, um, and then the end of it is just like, he goes, he like goes through the door to the new heaven and you don't, but you don't actually find out what it is. But it, it's kind of this idea that like, you know, without, de- you know, with I, I, my interpretation, without death, you know, we live forever. It, it somehow does like the meaning is somehow erased in the end or something. If you can do it, if you want, if there's no limits or something, then. I mean, yeah. You know, I think that's a really good point. I think that's the whole, it's so interesting because especially when I was working in hospice in the front lines that like, people would say to me, how do you work in hospice? How do you watch people die all day? Well, they'll say like, what's the secret to life? Like, how do you make sure you have a good life and a good death and a good whatever? Um, and I, I think, part of what you get out of this work, which sounds so depressing is that feeling that you're describing, which is this acute awareness of the preciousness of life and the, uh, and the awareness that something can go is part of what helps you sort of take advantage is when you could lose it. Um, but I remember what I always said to people is like, don't live your life for the last 10 minutes. Don't live your life for some hallmark deathbed moment, like live your life for having a life that's worth living, not as insurance so that the last 10 minutes of your life are going to be something specific. Um, Cause you have so little control over how that goes. Um, but yeah, I think that sense of preciousness of vulnerability in many ways, it makes us feel more vulnerable, but it also makes us feel more connected and it gives us an opportunity to form these connections and do powerful things in the world that make us feel really good. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that so, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm like dropping all these uh, literary references, but that reminds me there's a, there's a poem that was in the New Yorker 10 or 15 years ago that I liked it enough that I cut it out and I can't remember the, the uh, poet or the title. Now I'll see if I can find the link if it's still online somewhere, but it was like, you know, uh, you know, live every day as if it's your last is the saying. And he was like, uh, you know, if it was your last day on earth, would you like decide like just to like take some time and drink some tea? Uh, probably not because you have all this other stuff you wanted to do if it was your last day on earth. And, uh, and kind of like going along that, those lines of, you know, uh, yeah, it, it, it just making an argument against that, that style of, of thinking. Um, so, Okay, I think that's all I have. Um, so, Abby, uh, thank you for coming on. Um, very glad that you are doing better. Um, thank you. Is there a, a, you have a website, right, that people could look at if they want to find your research? You don't? Yeah. I thought you did. I, yeah, it's like a it's not, 
it's like for job seeking, I do consulting work. It's not very interesting, but yes, abigailnathanson.com. You can check it out, but it's not, it's just like, a, it's like my resume online. So it's not very interesting, but you're okay, we'll be, people well, you're may be interested that. if they yes. want to learn more about death anxiety or, or other things we discussed. Okay. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Abby. Uh, thank you to our viewers and listeners and we'll uh, see you again next time.